Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Olaine Eaton. Today I'm going to be talking with Alina Garcia La Puerta about her new book entitled La Belle Creole, The Cuban Countess Who Captivated Havana, Madrid, and Paris. Hi, Alina. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you could just start things off by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, good morning, and uh, thanks for having me. I was uh, born in Cuba, raised in the United States mainly. Uh, I now live mostly in London and split my, but go over quite a bit to the U.S. still. Um, and uh, I have been researching, or I researched this book for quite a long time. It was a bit of, started as a bit of a hobby and then has become um, a real project. Uh, my background is mostly in international relations and banking and such, so this was a bit of a transition. And that's where I am now, so that's my new career, so to speak. <laughs> so how did you come across the story of Mercedes Santa Cruz? I knew it was going to happen, in Motalvo. And what drew you to her as a biographical subject? Also, if you want to say the name properly. Yeah. Well, her full name is Maria de las Mercedes mm-hmm. Santa Cruz in Montalvo. Um, I call her Mercedes in the book because it becomes a lot easier. She's also known uh, quite a bit as the Condesa de Merlin or the Comtesse Merlin, depending on which language you want to look into. Um, she, I came across her in... Um, in books about Cuba, specifically a lot of what I call the photographic coffee table books that you will see sometimes about old Havana with beautiful pictures of the old houses and palaces because she wrote a book uh, called the translation in English would be Voyage to Havana via Havana uh, set in about 1840 based on a journey she took back to where she had been born and in it she chronicles 19th century colonial life in Cuba so oftentimes they will quote uh, from that book in these other uh, to describe the life of the time in these palaces and houses. And I was very intrigued because they would often mention her just in passing as, you know, Cuban born, lived in Paris, married to a French general, things like that. And I just thought to myself, how unusual, what is a Cuban woman doing in 19th century Paris? And I wanted to learn more about her and then searched out her books and started looking into her life. And the more I looked into it, uh, it, it was an incredibly sweeping and fascinating life. She had been quite celebrated, quite famous in her time and in afterwards for quite a few decades too. And then, but at the same time, the stories, everything I would read seemed such a bit exaggerated. I mean, she seemed to have known every single important person in France at the time, in Spain at the time, uh, in Cuba. She had been in all these amazing uh, periods of time of war. She was in the Peninsular War in Spain, uh, you know, in Paris. She was in in very key moments also during kind of the first half of the 19th century. And I just kept thinking, she couldn't possibly have known all these people because why haven't I heard of her? You know, how could she have known everybody in the literary world, musical world, political world? And I mean, the names that just came coming up are things like, you know, Bonaparte's and uh, uh, all the French marshals, uh, literary people like Balzac and Dumas and the music world. It's like Litz, Chopin, the great singers of the day. I mean, people that even I wasn't sure who some of them were. And when you looked into it, they turned out to be, you know, incredibly important for whatever they were doing at the time. It just seemed so amazing um, that I thought it just, you know, Cubans tend to exaggerate. And I thought here, here is a clear example of exaggeration. But um, 
when I, and there were a lot of contradictions too, but when I started looking into it, the amazing thing is that pretty much everything's true. <laughs> it's just, you know, um, I made a big effort to try to document all these things. And yes, she really did know all those people. She, yes, she really was in all those places and her family was important enough and well-connected enough at different points in times to be right at the heart of all these political things that were happening in in Cuba, in Spain, and then to a certain extent later in France also. So it, it proved quite a interesting, um, to me, personal discovery about this woman. And then I just wondered why no one had ever written about her in English and even even Cubans of this day, don't. most of them don't know who she is. So I just, I couldn't believe that. So I thought maybe it was worthwhile trying to bring her back to life, so to speak, and explore her world. You have a great author's note on the matter of names, which we've already just run into. Um, could you talk a bit about how you came to settle upon calling her simply Mercedes? Um, well, I ended up calling her Mercedes for several reasons. First of all, an English-speaking audience, just if you know, if you try the full name, it is confusing. Um, Spanish-born or, or Latin American-born women, or anyone actually, has two last names, two surnames, which immediately confuses English speakers, mm-hmm. and um, and so I had to explain that a little bit. But also, it's just the name is a little too complicated. Also, again, as I said, she had this title. Um, and in France, they would call her the Comtesse Merlin. In Spanish, it's the Condesse Merlin. I could have just, I guess, translated and called her Countess Merlin or something like that. But after you spend so much time with a figure, a subject in a biography, you, I think you start developing some kind of personal relationship with this person, even though she died in 1852. But I mean, you're reading their personal correspondence, you're looking into all these incredibly, you know, detailed things about her parents, uh, about her relatives, about her husband, Um, even the legal documents. You're looking at things like wills and, you know, um, litigation that had to do with her father's estates. And, you know, even that is actually quite personal. And then she also wrote her memoirs and such. And after a while, all her letters are signed Mercedes or M sometimes and things like that. So she clearly referred to herself as Mercedes. And I just thought, you know, I think also for a reader, um, calling her Mercedes made her more real. Maybe it brought her more into today's world because she is a historical figure. So you're you're thinking of a time or looking at a time that might seem very far away from you. Although I constantly found things that's made it to me very relatable to today. And I just thought if you call her Mercedes, people will develop some kind of feeling for her. And I think that's one thing you want in a biography. Hopefully, I ended up, somebody once asked me this, actually, is did I like my subject after spending years looking at her? And I said, Actually, yes, which was a good answer, I think, hopefully. (laughs) I didn't want to say, no, I didn't really like her after. I actually really, really liked her, and I wanted to convey that. And I hope that you hear the name Mercedes, you you see her referred to as Mercedes, and hopefully you too, the reader, will develop some kind of, you know, uh, sympathy for her, or at least understanding for her. Um, So I wanted just to make her a little bit more personal. And it's funny because... um, I think that's a good question, too, because I was asked, especially by Spanish-speaking 
people more in like Miami or such. I was interviewed on Spanish language radio and, and by Cubans and such. And it's interesting because several of them said, well, yes, you called her Mercedes. You didn't call her the Condesa de Merlin. Well, you know, why did you do that? And I was like, well, she was a woman, you know, she was like an actual person. And I think in a biography, you're trying to humanize someone too. I think that's another thing. I'm not trying to depict this distant figure. So anyway, that was my, thought behind all that. Yeah, it was a great note because um, I'm dealing with that in my own work and it's so fascinating to see how other people deal with it, especially when they, they put it explicitly there, their reasoning for why they've done it. Yeah. Um, so this is a sweeping story that unfolds across Cuba and Spain and France. What sources were most helpful to you and where did you find them? Um, well, a bit like her life, the, <laughs> the sources are really scattered in those three places. So uh, and all three of them were actually crucial to understanding the overall story and then the specific bits that take place in the different uh, countries. So um, Cuba seemed to me an obvious starting point. And, and yes, you, you, I think to really tell her story, you do need to go into the archives in Cuba, which I did. Um, some things I could find about Cuba in the U.S. and in, in, in London, but really, and even in Spain, actually, because it was a Spanish colony for so long. There, there's lots of documents in Spain that actually relate just to the Cuba part and especially to her father because he was quite prominent. Mm-hmm. Um, but Cuba had an incredible wealth of resources, especially to do with, you know, her, the things that had to do with her family and her father. And again, her father was very important. And, but he, more importantly, he, affected her life tremendously, uh, both because of how she felt about him and also because of uh, decisions that he made of where to go and where to take his family. And ultimately, his death, which was quite unexpected, um, left a legacy of what I would call a legacy of lit- litigation, basically. <laughs> and, it, and it financially affected her. And that, in turn, um, you know, had repercussions throughout her life, especially in decisions she made, including her famous, this well, famous for the time, return journey that she did to Cuba. So, But even the idea of why she ended up in Spain, why she was separated from her family for so long, a lot of that has to do with decisions her father made. And there's a lot of legends around her father. And again, you want to go back to the original sources and read, actually see for yourself what was going on. Because people you know, over the years can add layers and layers of myths to things. And if you don't go back, sometimes you're not quite sure at some point what's true or what's fiction. Um, And again, Spain, because the part of the time that she was there during the Peninsular War, uh, she writes about it in her memoirs. She wrote really interesting memoirs, but um, she wasn't very good with dates. (laughs) So let me put it that way. Um, you cannot rely on Mercedes for dates. Um, it, you can't rely on her to tell you how old she was correctly, accurately at any stage in her memoirs. <laughs> she starts kind of uh, shaving off years as, as it goes by. Um, also, she, even though she was really, really writing accurate memoirs, they were accurate. Everything she said pretty much happened. But she, I think she was writing them with an eye for readability and interest to an audience, which is what she was, I think, pitching. So she sometimes slightly rearranged things um, in the order that they happened. So she would mention something and then one battle 
in Spain during the Peninsular War and then talk about something else. And then you realize later when you read the historical context that that couldn't have happened the way, you know, it had to be the other way around, so to speak, because that battle happened, whatever, five months after the point that she's describing something else, things like that. So the, the sources in Spain helped explain a lot more about actually, uh, her family again was very active politically and there were a lot of sources that helped with that. So this, there's a section in the book um, where she has to uh, go with her family. They have to evacuate from Madrid. They have to f- uh, follow Joseph Bonaparte, who's now King of Spain. And they have to um, go from Madrid towards Victoria. And uh, it's the first time she's had to do this. And it's a complete change from her life. And it's quite dramatic, but, um, it was interesting in the Spanish archives, they actually have all the original documents for when they seized her family's property back in Madrid after they had fled. And you have witness statements from the servants, you know, because mm-hmm. they documented everything. You don't realize that. And that is still there sitting That's in these incredible. archives in Spain. Yeah. So you would have these, you know, people going, we went to the house of her mother, the the, the Countess of Haruko. And, you know, we we he knocked at the door and the servant, you know, you know, Juan Gonzalez opened the door and he claimed that they'd left at 3 a.m. in the morning on this. You know, I'm slightly inventing this, but mm-hmm. not actually there were the exact that type of specific things. What time they left, how many carriages did they take? Oh, and they had an extra carriage with all their bedding and stuff like that, you know, in the back. And and they went to this point right outside of Madrid. Well, it's now part of Madrid, but it would have been outside of Madrid at the time. And they met the French army there and then they, they left their carriages and took hired carriages. And, the, you know, they did all this stuff. And then they would go in and, and go into the actual house, into the... Um, into the, the it, it's kind of like an apartment within a house and they would go room by room and they would document what they would find and of course they had hidden things and then they would say we found the secret door we finally found where you know there were valuable things but they were literally going through each room and so they would describe each room and it's really amazing and then witness statements defending them saying no no they really didn't you know go with the French army what they really did were they were going to the border to meet up with a cousin and do this and do that and it was just amazing. Um, so, and that's all in Spain. Uh, and in France, for a long time, I don't know why no one who wrote about her a lot in Spanish has really bothered to look in the French archives. And they turned out to be amazing because, not surprisingly, <laughs> she lived for 40 years there. And um, the French are also wonderful in the sense that when someone dies, you have to do an inventory right away. And the inventory is everything that's in the house, every single piece of property they own, every single thing they do. Um, and so when her husband dies, we found in the National Archives the, you know, the, the inventory taken for the estate settlement. And it literally goes room by room. And this is her home where she's still living and where she will stay, you know, for quite a few more years. They go and they describe every single room, all its furnishings, all her dresses, all her jewels, Everything because all that goes into the estate pot and you have to, you know, document it. And the French are meticulous, meticulous for that. So, you know, you get all kinds of things that you didn't expect to find. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can actually describe what her salon must have been like. You can actually say, you know, she had these furniture, she had this type of piano, you know, she had, um, you know, these jewels, these dresses. It, it's, 
it was very, you know, wonderful for a biographer because you can add, add some descriptive details. And you also get a sense of how she lived. And there were other things like that. You know, there were more letters and such. So all three places, um, I think, were incredibly important. And then there were a few little things scattered in odd places like, <laughs> um, you know, the National Gallery in London actually had a, 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 a catalog for an auction of her paintings. So that was and they were able to explain a few things to me, which were helpful, you know, in Miami, because the Cuban population has a big center for Cuban studies um, in the University of Miami. And they had things that, you know, helped me figure out where some of her father's estates were. I could look at the old maps and things like that. So, you know, um, I think even Princeton University had a one a very rare copy of, of a novel that she wrote. I think it's one of the few copies in the United States. So, you know, I happened to be there. Mm-hmm. So you'd be surprised, but you do, I think in the end, you do actually have to look in a lot of places for someone like her who lived mm-hmm. in all those places. And it's quite a long time ago too. So, you know, I think uh, it, it's very useful, but it was exciting too. I think it was enjoyable. It is. Archival research is so fun. I mean, it's arduous, but fun. <laughs> it is <laughs> And you met with some of her relatives as well, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, And that's another thing. It's funny because, again, all the cute – everybody who who looks at her from the different countries kind of focuses on the slice of her life that was there. Mm -hmm. So for some reason, the – it, all the Spanish language things always say that she has no descendants, and that's because um, she had three uh, children who lived to be adults, and all three married. Two were sons. Uh, only one of the sons had children, and then his children, her grandchildren, um, had no children. So the the Merlon name in her line, in her husband's line, dies out there. But she had a daughter, and that's so typical. They kind of ignored the daughter. <laughs> a daughter who... Um, was very close to her mother and uh, married twice because she was widowed and had children with both husbands. And uh, there's quite a few descendants, and they're all in France, as far as I know, and they're descended from those two um, marriages of her daughter. And I met from both sides of those families, um, and it was it was wonderful. They were very welcoming. They're very proud of her. They They completely know who she is, and they're, you know, they were very excited at the thought of the biography. Mm-hmm. Um, they would like it translated into French. That's their only request. And actually, one of them has done an informal translation so that some of the other relatives who couldn't read English um, could read it. But they were lovely, and they were very welcoming. They unfortunately didn't have a lot of um, original documents or things like that. I think they've been lost throughout you know, all the different wars. I mean, one of the relatives said that her... Her grandmother had had some things, but their house had been, as she wrote, as she wrote to me, pillage, you know, pillage, whatever, uh, in, um, in during World War II, I think. So it's uh, uh, a lot of things have been lost over time. And I think some a lot of things were sold right after her death also. But one of the relatives uh, organized a sort of family reunion because some of these cousins, very distant cousins, didn't know each other because they were from different branches and such. And he organized a little reunion uh, uh, about you know, two summers ago and was lovely because he actually does own um, the, the painting that shows up the most about her, which is in the book, and also um, the print of, that's on the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually owns those original plus one of his of her daughter, 
and uh, he he hosted us all, and that was a really lovely weekend. It was a lot of fun. So it was nice meeting everybody in person. It, it was, um, I think, for a biographer, it's kind of kind of cool to actually meet the descendants of the mm-hmm. person that you're writing to, and that, the fact that they're supportive is always a nice thing too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, how long were you researching this? Um. From the, I mean, it was about 10 years mm-hmm. from the time that I first heard of her and started looking up her works and, you know, going to, to University of Miami and looking into her life a little bit and things like that. And I started kind of collecting information about her piecemeal for a time. But I would say, I think really it was more around seven years of more serious research. And once I had the contract um, to actually write the biography... Um, then I, I actually, I, I sort of plunged into a lot of archival research because until then I think it was more, um, just gathering things from different sources and, uh, a lot of memoirs that were written at the time mention her, things like that, you know, yeah. stuff that you can get it more, more, more easily, easily yeah. in, in libraries or British library helped a lot, things like that, or mm-hmm. University of Miami in the summer, I would go there a lot, but, um, the archival stuff, because it is more labor intensive. It's also more expensive because you actually need to travel or do something or, you know, pay for digital photos or images or things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's always something biographers weighs. How much, how much do you commit research in terms of time and money before you have a contract? Yeah. And yet you need to know a certain amount before you can get the contract. So it's always a tricky thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Most of the French research I actually did after I had the contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and it turned out to be fine because it was easy enough for me to get over there and, and start looking. I knew at that point, I also knew where things were. Mm-hmm. It was just a question of getting over there and then kind of seeing what you could find. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so it, it's, I think it's a, I think biography is, is a, it takes a while. It t- it's a long, it can be a long process. I guess it depends on the subject too mm-hmm. and how accessible the material is. Yeah. Definitely. So we're not going to talk about her too directly, but I don't want to completely skip over her because I want um, to whet readers' appetites and stuff. So if you could just give us a a quick overview of where she came from and also of her quite unconventional childhood. So she was born in late 18th century Cuba, 1789, in Havana. She comes from a very, um, the old Cuban aristocracy, which I think a lot of people don't realize there was one. And, um, these were the people who owned, yes, mostly most of the sugar and coffee and tobacco and such um, plantations and farms. Uh, it was a, it was they're mostly of Spanish descent. They actually live in Cuba, um, and she comes from this world. As I said, her father was quite uh, important. He goes off to Spain though, because um, Spain it's. Cuba is still a colony, and if you really want to advance your career, he was in the military also, or politically, you, you sort of go to the heart of the empire, which was Madrid. Um, but he and his wife, who go off um, when they're quite young, decide to leave Mercedes and her brother in Cuba, because at that point she was about two months old or so, very oh, just a few months old. And... Um, I think most people, maybe even they thought it was just going to be a, a, a year or two that they would be away or something like that. They left her with her great-grandmother. Uh, they left her brother with uh, the paternal grandmother, so a different person. But they were away for 
well, her mother never returned to Cuba. She just stayed in Madrid. And her father did return um, for work reasons. But in effect, she didn't see her father until she was about eight and a half years old, and she didn't see her mother until she was 13, and not in Cuba, but in Spain. So she had a very, very unique childhood. <laughs> um, she was raised by her great-grandmother, and I think that's something that is quite shocking to hear, that a mother would not see their daughter for 13 years. Um, but she had a wonderful uh, childhood in Cuba. She loved Cuba. She was quite spoiled, I think. They let her do everything. Um, but I think there was something that, you know, marked her for a long time, the, the fact that she was separated from her family. Um, so as a teenager, she's brought finally to Spain, and then she doesn't return to Cuba for almost uh, 40 years, about 38 years, because uh, she's swept up in the Peninsular War in Spain. Uh, she's married off to a French general, in effect, uh, and then ends up in exile in France when the Napoleonic forces lose in Spain. And then she stays in France. And then in France, she, um, I like to say she recreates herself um, because that's when she establishes her salon. Uh, she's a great singer, actually. She's a great amateur singer. And she has the most celebrated musical salon in Paris. And she um, also starts writing at a time where Latin American women did not write um, or do anything like that. So she's the earliest Cuban author, but she was just someone who knew, as I said, she was at, she was at the heart of everything, knew everyone and um, just lived a fascinating life. So uh, there's a, she had a very unconventional life. She also escaped from a convent when she was in her childhood. At one point, her father, decided she needed to be in a convent to be educated, and she did not enjoy that. And since no one listened to her about the fact that she didn't want to be there, she managed to escape. She writes about it in her memoirs, and uh, it's actually something that became a legend in Havana because well-brought-up young ladies back then, especially ones that were about nine years old or ten or something like that, did not escape from convents, especially in, in the center of Havana. So uh, that's always a popular story. Yeah, it was one of my favorites. Yeah. <laughs> so was there anything that you had to cut out or that you didn't have enough space to cover as much as you would have liked to? There's lots of related things um, that had to be left out or cut out, so to speak, because um, unfortunately with books, we have word counts. So, you know, we have a limit. A terrible afterwards. drag. Yeah, it's a terrible drag because, you know, the book, I, I say the book could have been double the length or what have you. Um, and also uh, one thing the editors kept saying was you don't want to veer too far from her story. And yet there were so many related stories or things that came, you know, that I found out in the course of research that I thought were really fascinating. I mean, um, things that had to do with, with her father, with her family, um, or even with, with just coincidences. Uh, for some reason, her, her life was full of so many coincidences, coincidences, people that she would meet in one point in one country would somehow either pop up or their cousin, or was it turns out it was their, their brother or somebody would pop up in another point. And then you realize actually that's how it was back then to a certain extent um, in her world. And I think that's one of the reasons that she was able to, to establish herself also in, in, in France. But there's just, it was a really exciting time and especially the Cuba and the um, Spain those parts I found really fascinating, but it was just, 
it was just too much. And at some point you had to streamline the whole thing. Um, anyway, so, yeah, so not one specific story, but definitely, definitely lots of things. I could have quoted a lot more from her letters. I could have quoted a lot more from stories that she tells. Um, but again, it's, it's a question of, you know, you have to keep the story going. You have to focus on her uh, specifically. And then in the end of the day, you only have a certain amount of words, you know, number of words that you can use. And otherwise you will be editing quite extensively, yes. uh, which is a shame. It is. Yeah. It is. So what do you see as her legacy? Um, I think her legacy, um, it, there are several things. First of all, I think... I think she can be a really inspiring character for people reading her today. And especially, um, you know, not to get into all the issues of the day, but especially if you look at, there's not, there are very few of these um, biographies or women of her time period who you can say are Latin American, or you can say are just strong women character who were not, you know, queens or, or extremely famous today literary figures, whatever. You find very few of these biographies. And she's quite an inspiring character, um, especially in the U.S. I was speaking to a lot of people, uh, again, um, in, in Miami, but in New York and D.C. and also places that you can make her a really interesting uh, character if you think of her as a success. I mean, she's almost like an immigrant story, a successful immigrant story. I mean, she's had to go to this place, France, at the lowest part of her family's life, so to speak. And yet she finds the inner strength. She recreates herself. She works in a foreign language. She really succeeds. And I think that's actually, I think it's nice to have someone like her to show uh, to people, you know, that you can consider her very European because she was. I mean, she was of Spanish descent, you know, so... But at the same time, she's got this this Cuban thing, which is interesting for someone succeeding in French, because, again, she was so celebrated in Paris. She was um, an established figure there. Um, and I think her other legacy is the writing that she left. Unfortunately, it's not available in English to date. Hopefully, someday somebody will do something about that. But if you read it, uh, especially her memoirs of her early Cuban childhood and um, the Voyage to Havana, Viaje a Havana, it offers a window into a world that's completely vanished. And yet it's a world that I think had a lot of implications today for why Cuba is the way it is. Um, there's very few of these accounts written by someone who is both an insider and an outsider mm -hmm. um, because she was very much from the heart of the Cuban establishment. Yet once, you know, she's lived 40 years away outside of Cuba by the time she returns. So there's always this question of identity. You know, does she, you know, is she a Cuban? Is she French? Is she um, a foreign or a European coming to visit Cuba? And does she have a right to comment? I think these are things that given how much people, you know, move around today mm -hmm. um, is always a question. I mean, once you leave a country, do you still have that tie? Can you still go back to it? And at the same time, she writes these beautiful lyrical um, accounts. I mean, everybody, most of the people who've, who have read her things that I've spoken to always comment on how much they love her beautiful lyrical descriptions of Cuba and of her homeland. And you can tell she just loved this land so much. And I think that's a wonderful legacy because it's, a, it's an eyewitness account, so to speak. 
um, it's like a love letter to to a land that you know she no longer could live in, but that she still remembered. And I think that's something that again with people who move around. You know, today we go, you know, I live here in London. I'm not British, you know, I'm mm-hmm. from another part. Uh, just, I think we move around a lot today. But I think this idea of the nostalgia for someone of left your homeland, of the place you've left, of where you were from, of your roots or things like that. I think that's something that everybody can identify with. And I think that's um, something that comes through in her writing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think it's a, she's overall a great story and a strong woman character and an interesting one mm-hmm. at the same time. So I think she has a few legacies there. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so do you have any advice for first time biographers? Oh gosh. Uh, <laughs> Are you saving that for your book? <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, I think the, I mean, I got into the whole thing probably knowing less than I should have mm-hmm. in terms of how the whole thing works. I, I would, I would have spent more time trying to make contacts in in the world of biography. You know, I would have joined. Well, I think when I first started, groups like you know, Biographers International and things like that didn't even exist. Right, but I right. wish they had because I used to search for those types of groups all the time. Because almost every other genre of writing seems to have a group or right. an organization, and you know, there's things you just don't know, even from. Some of the questions, you know, you hear when you go to, you know, you know, meetings or things or panel discussions and such. But everything, that whole thing, the balance of how much do you research before, you know, when are you ready to do this? Um, How do you do a proposal? I didn't even realize you had to do a proposal. You know, that's, you know, but I know this sounds really, really basic, but I think the vast, I get asked these questions Mm -hmm. all the time. So it's. Unless you're already in that world, you don't necessarily know those answers. Exactly. Um, so I think I think to to you know go to as many things as you can and learn about the process and learn um, speak to other biographers and just even if it's not specifically your subject or anything like that, um, I think you find out a lot about how their research techniques or even sources even even things where to look because I think the biggest question when you start off is well where am I going to find the information mm-hmm. um, so anyway I think that's what I would have loved I would have loved to have had more contact mm-hmm. um, with experienced biographers to be to begin with um, and I also think I think also my other advice is you're probably ready to at least do a proposal probably earlier than you think yeah um, I think I, th- I think I spent a long time just even wondering, can I do this? And I think that at some point, if you have a fair idea, first of all, if you've already looked into a subject uh, to a certain extent, and if you have a fair idea of where you want to take this, mm-hmm. and you've done your research in terms of what else is out there for the book and things like that, then you're probably ready to at least um, start putting together an idea for a proposal. Um, and if there's anyone who can take a look at it before you send it out to agents or such, that would be great too. So again, that's where maybe having some contacts mm-hmm. with, uh, with other biographers and other people in that field start helping. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so <laughs> that's a few of the things yeah, maybe I would have done differently. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we do spend a lot of time wondering, can I do this when we're actually already doing it? <laughs> so, you are doing it because you've yeah. already, yes, I think mm-hmm. before you realize it, you probably are the expert in what you're, who you're looking at. And yes, you can do it because, 
um, as I said, it's not as though I had done this before. And yes, I had to learn how to do a proposal and, and then pitch it to agents. But, you know, someone picked it up and then a publisher then picked it up. So, yes, it's it can be done. Yes, totally doable. <laughs> it's totally doable. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with us today about La Belle Creole. Any idea who you're going to be writing about next? Um, well, I have um, – I'm in the middle of – proposals now. That's why I said I think it takes less time the second time around or what have you. Um, and I've been looking into another uh, Cuba-related figure, um, one of the early, how can I say it, American heiresses who came over to England. So we'll see. Hopefully that'll work out. Very and uh, that's been a very, yeah, that's interesting so far. And it's also taking me again back to Cuba and to a few other countries. So again, it's the uh, search among, you know, search different places for all the information, but it's interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. I've been talking today with Alina Garcia La Puerta about her new book, La Belle Creole, which is now out in hardback. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.